Hi there, and welcome to One Body, One Life, proudly sponsored by Jamae's Fine Foods. I'm Vicky Nguyen, and I'm on a personal mission to live to 120, and I would absolutely love to take you on this journey with me. This show is focused on longevity and understanding how we can all live longer and stronger through diet, exercise, lifestyle, nutrition, and so on. Each episode, we will uncover tips and tricks to living your healthiest and happiest life for as long as physically possible. I'll be chatting to the experts as well as people who have defied the odds and explore various treatments and modalities to help us all reach optimal wellness. So in this episode, I talk all things sleep with the wonderful sleep specialist, Dr. David Cunnington. Dr. Cunnington studied in both Australia and in the USA at Harvard Medical School, allowing him to have international qualifications in sleep medicine. He is an expert commentator for a variety of sleep disorders, including sleep apnea, narcolepsy and restless leg syndrome. Dr. Cunnington strives to educate the public on the importance of sleep health through research and advocacy. And rather than resorting to medication alone, Dr. Cunnington treats his patients through behavioural and psychological treatments. David is the co-director of Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre. He also writes regular blogs for the Sleep Hub and has his own podcast. I'm curious to understand how one of my favourite pastimes can lead to better health and longevity. So welcome to the show, David. So good to see you. So I I actually love sleeping. It's one of my favorite things and it's a topic that I've wanted to explore for such a long time now and especially now with what's happening with coronavirus around the world and no doubt there are many listeners who are perhaps struggling with sleep and finding it really difficult right now. So tell us, what, what happens when you sleep? What happens to the brain during sleep? So the brain's actually really active during sleep. So going back until the, back to the 19th century, it used to be thought that the brain was quiet because the body was still and nothing's supposed to happen at night. It, people thought that there was no electrical activity in the brain. Wow. And that's actually the basis for Freud's conflict theory is there had to be something to generate those electrical signals that therefore gave dreaming. So you needed this ed ego conflict. Once we could start to measure what was happening in the brain in the 1930s and then into the 1940s, we really learned that the brain's very active during sleep and it does lots of different things and depends on which different sleep stages, what it's actually doing. But sleep's an active, restorative process. The, the funny thing is people still ask me, well, what's the purpose of sleep? <laughs> we don't. Apart from restoration, we still don't really know the answer to that. And I love the quote from Bill Dement, one of the sort of doyens of sleep research. And he says, well, we sleep so we don't bump into things walking around at night. (laughs) I used to say to my kids, it was a time for their bodies to grow. During the sleep is when they grow. So, but what, so talk to us about the stages of sleep. So artificially sleep's divided up into two main categories, REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep. Which you can actually feel, can't you? Not necessarily. Let me come back to that. And non-REM sleep, so non-rapid eye movement sleep. And then within non-REM, we divide it into three, so N1, N2, N3. What we call N3 now, we used to call slow-wave sleep or delta sleep, so it's now in N3. And the reason I say somewhat artificially divided into that is that categorization of REM and non-REM was really decided upon and finalised in 1968 at a consensus committee. So some old bloke sitting around a table decided that's how we're going to divide this thing up. Okay. It hasn't changed since. Oh, And really what it is, if we look at these, it's based on electrical signals from the brain. There's actually many, many different frequencies and all different bits of the brain doing all different things. Right. And research now is you can record 256 different channels of electrodes from regionally wow. across the brain and show that it's all different. 
we still only categorize it into those four main categories. Interesting. And the reason I talk about, you know, you saying you can feel REM is when people think about sleep, they sometimes think, they sort of go more on, this is how it feels to me. And I think REM should feel this way. Therefore, that's what I'm experiencing. But in actual fact, if you think of REM as a mixture of electrical frequencies in the brain, how on earth could you feel that? Yeah, right. It's totally disconnected. Yes. Whereas enough. if people say, oh, I'm not, what's your problem with sleep? Well, I'm not getting enough REM. I've really got to ask them, what do you mean by that? And for one person, it'll be, well, I don't dream. And another person, it'll be, well, I'm too still. And everyone's got their own interpretations. I really think of sleep as having a number of different ways you can look at it. Okay. So one way is the experience. So that's the sleeper. How does it feel to them? Another way to look at it is the observer, the bed partner, for example. What does it look like to them? And it's often different because <laughs> the sleeper will, or the person experiencing it will say, well, I was awake. And the partner will say, no, you weren't. You were asleep because you were asleep. You were yes. snoring. And so there, you, that's a demonstration where, where they don't line up. A third way of looking at it is think of physiology. So what's actually happening at a biological level. Right. So that's more the EEG type of definition. And yet another way of looking at it is of the functional outcome. So what's the outcome from sleep? Because arguably, if someone's functioning well during the day, got good physical and mental health, who cares how it feels, what it looks like, or what the EEG shows? Okay. Because they may actually be totally irrelevant if somebody's functioning well. But very often people who come to see me in my role as a medical specialist are very hung up about the how it feels. Okay. But lose track of the sight that they've actually got good physical and mental health. But does it catch up with them eventually? That if, they, if they, they're feeling that they're not sleeping that well, but even though they've got the energy to function throughout the day. So it depends. So it depends on how they feel like they're not sleeping well. Because that's also one of the funny things about sleep is a lot of our beliefs about sleep are more societal and cultural beliefs. So we have this belief that we should sleep for eight hours. It should be a continuous experience. We shouldn't be aware of things. Bad things shouldn't happen. That's all rubbish. Okay. Everyone sleeps for variable amounts of time. Yes. Um, there's about 30% of a normal night's usually characterized by semi-awareness okay. of things around us. We do move during sleep. Sleep's not a stable, um, stable thing. It's something that varies across the night. So we have all these beliefs about sleep. Okay. And often people will feel like their sleep's not good. They're not satisfied yes. for their sleep, for example. But it's more that the sleep they're experiencing doesn't meet the belief or the expectation they have as to what sleep should, should be. And we often simplify that, unfortunately, you know, in, in this day and age, there's lots of messages about sleep in the community. And often it's a little bit oversimplified where it's got to be, you need eight, eight hours or yes. there'll be these bad consequences. It must be like this. Okay. If it's not like that, you're going to suffer Which things, is not the case, you're saying. Which is actually not necessarily the case. So is REM the most important part of a sleep? No. No. <laughs> and Should you could answer? ask you could ask me that question for any stage of sleep. Okay. Really, what's important for sleep? It, again, if we break it down in those definitions, and I've, if I think of a physiological definition, it's having the right mix okay. of all those sleep stages, all of it, yeah, and them occurring in the right sequence. Okay. So if I'm looking at a sleep study and I look at it sort of screen after screen or page after page, it should unfold like a story. Okay. I should be able to tell what's coming next oh. based on what's gone before. Yeah, right. It, it evolves. It's it sort of unfolds yep, across yep. the night. It's not a 
something where you just add them up at the end and you've got enough in each bin, yes. everything's good. Yeah. It's actually got to follow a particular sequence. Okay. So that's what's good quality sleep. Excellent. Which doesn't, it's so hard to then distill down into, well, my Fitbit says I had 30% light <laughs> and 70% deep, therefore is that good? Where's the story? Yes. You know, where, is it really in the right sequence? Yeah, and right. What's it's actually got to flow happening? nicely. Beautiful. I I sleep amazingly well. I've always slept pretty well, but I'm not. I don't move either. I breathe deeply, and I, I wake up pretty much in the same position that I've fallen asleep in, which is great. But my husband often comments on how deeply and how well I sleep. But I actually put it down to my breathing. I think my breath work that I did with yoga teaching for all those years actually helped me, and uh, allows me to sleep peacefully. And I feel always fresh when I wake up. So, tell us about. So, what hormones are released during sleep? So it varies in different stages of life. So you know your story. You told your kids. You grow at yes. night. There's certainly truth to the fact that growth hormone is secreted at night. So one yes. of the hormones that is a driver for for growth. And so yes, that's part of that data that suggests that at certain stages in life, particularly adolescence, if people aren't getting adequate sleep or sleep disrupted, you'll alter their growth hormone levels. Now we don't have great data showing that means they're going to be shorter yes. or not develop, but we can certainly measure growth hormone as something that's secreted at night. And again, don't don't think of it so much as sleep in isolation. And this is also a common theme that comes up when people come see me in my practice, is they almost ignore what happens during their waking hours and are very focused on what happens just during sleep. Right. Whereas in fact, our biological, you know, we're biological beings that run 24-7 and there's a yin and a yang, there's an ebb and a flow, there's <laughs> yeah. ups and downs yes. and things alter and vary across that 24-hour period. And so it's not as if, if you just don't get the right bit of sleep at the right time, then this won't happen. Yeah. Because the sleep, what happens in sleep often is very dependent on what happens during the day. Yes. You're not paying attention to self-care, so you don't have good stress management strategies. Yes. You're not eating well. You're not socially engaged. Um, you know, not have good self-compassion. You know, exactly. all of these things can then actually impact on sleep. Totally. And someone ends up in my office going, "I've got this sleep problem," and I'm going sitting across the desk going, "You know what? Your life's in the toilet. You know, yes. you're, you've really got some other more existential problems it's happening." Yeah. They go, "No, no, just fix my sleep, and yes. my life will be okay." <laughs> Well, I love the fact that you're quite holistic in your approach and you look at the big picture because, like you said, it's all of these factors that come into play when you're thinking, you know, when you're looking at sleep quality and how a person feels. So um, talk to me about, like, a lot of people say they love waking up naturally without an alarm. What, what's, are there benefits to that? And is it, is it because you're not breaking the sleep? It's just like you're waking up naturally when your body's ready. Is that why people like it so much? It's, it's variable. Yeah. So yes, if we just sleep ad lib, so yes. let ourselves wake up when we're ready to wake up, usually we'll wake up at the end of a cycle of sleep. And that's a natural time when we'll feel like we're ready to go. So have a bit more of that sensation of, ah, I'm okay. awake, right. Good let, to go. Let's get into the day. Whereas if it's, okay, I have a hard start at 7am, yes. no, no matter what, 7am is my time. <laughs> yes. Some days it may be close to the end of a sleep cycle and you're like, yeah, okay, I can, I can do this. And other days you may be mid-cycle of sleep and you're like, oh, yes. that's seven o'clock thing again. Poor, that's tough. Yeah. Well, today. I was up this morning at four o'clock because I had to take my intern to the airport for a five o'clock flight and I had to go and pick her up and it was 4, 4 a.m. And usually I've, I've caught lots of international flights before. It's, you know, super ridiculous early times, but I felt dizzy. 
And I don't know if it was a combination of getting up too quick or just I was so it took me a while to actually come, you know, come good and feel safe enough to drive. Right. But that's a nice demonstration of one of the other processes that's involved in sleep, which is your internal body clock. Right. And so if we get up three hours, for example, before our natural arising time. Yes. Think of the body clock as expecting us to be lying flat in the dark and still. And so our blood pressure regulation is going to be not expecting us to be upright. Exactly. So we'll get a sense of, whoa. Yeah, that's how I felt. I'm really right here. I'm not quite orientated. The where your sleep story, that evolving story across the night is, is it's going to be in the type of sleep that has some inertia associated with it. Yeah, right. Because the the body and brain aren't expecting to wake up for a couple of hours yet. Yes. So they haven't started to shut down those sleep processes. Yeah. And if you get woken at that time, it's just like, oh. Shock. I'm heavy headed. This is really going to take ages to... To yeah, get going. I'm good, yeah. And then as your circadian rhythm comes to the phase where your body core, core body temperature starts to gradually increase, get ready for the day, that's yes. when you start to feel the fog lift and feel like, ah, okay, now, now I'm on board. Yeah, yes. now I can do this. Well, that's exactly how my experience was this morning. So tell us about, I mean, like you said earlier, there's, you know, people think that eight hours of sleep is the amount, like the right amount of time that we should be getting. But you were saying before it's completely individual. And so what what's your take on that? Like, and, and, and also does... Does that change the number of hours or, you know, as we age, does that requirement change? Do we need less? Yeah, absolutely. So sleep evolves across life. So we, it's longer in some phases of life. So adolescence and our early adult life, for example, shorter in other phases, such as in older age. Um, for people of working age, so think of that as sort of 20-ish to 65-ish, it stays fairly stable. Okay. Now, if you look at the um, population averages in Australia, so population average is seven hours and 20 minutes of sleep. Oh. Across the Australian population. Okay. But that's the average. Now, what an average hides is the upper and lower sort of borders of that. Now, in a research sense, we do have some evidence that people who habitually get less than five hours of sleep per night have some health consequences associated with that. But funnily enough, people who sleep for more than nine hours per night also have some health consequences Mm. associated with it, not caused by it. Yes, associated. So we're not sure whether it's the short sleep and the long sleep is that they're a marker that someone's got some other health conditions. Yes, that makes sense. And sleep's the measurable thing. Yes, yes. But there's some other health things that are impacting on that. Interesting. Or whether it's the sleep itself or whether there's an interaction of, of those two things. Yeah, right. So generally we like to think of that upper and lower boundary was five to nine hours, but that's pretty broad. So you, in a working sense, I really much prefer something like seven to nine hours, which okay. should be the target uh, for Number, people. Yeah. Um, but there are a subset of people who don't need seven hours of sleep and function well. Fine, yeah. And in today's society, they wear that like a badge of honour. Yeah, it's, right. It's, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a <laughs> characteristic. <laughs> right, exactly. So yeah. you see our politicians, the ones who do get away or can get away with not sleeping yes, that much, which yes. isn't all of them by any stretch. Yep. They brag about it. Yes. And you see images of them, you know, John Howard out <laughs> pumping the pavement in the in the morning, yes. you know, as a, as a positive trait yes. that the Australian public likes. I want to see more images of our politicians napping yeah, right. in their pyjamas, nice. prioritising sleep, not bragging about debating bills at 2am in the morning yes. when their brains are going to be like you were at 4am <laughs> this morning. I don't want important decisions made when they're foggy and exactly. sleep deprived. Yeah, right. I, I want sleep to be a priority and that for really to be a positive trait. Absolutely. You need to start a movement, Dave, Dr. David. It's just uh, it's one of those things because you're right, people 
pride themselves on being busy, not sleeping much. They love this, you know, on the go. And so they're so caught up in doing that they forget about just being and nurturing themselves, don't they? Absolutely. So that's interesting. So what talk to us about the type of um, disorders that you treat. I know obviously insomnia is a very common one. What else do you treat? So think of, I'll put it in a couple of categories. Yep. So think of different categories. So one category is the can't sleep. Okay. So that's the insomnia category. Yes. Can't get to sleep, can't stay asleep, waking too early yes. in the morning. Another category is the too sleepy. Oh. Even okay. if I'm getting enough sleep, yep. I'm sleepy during the day. Yeah, right. So that's the narcolepsy people with fatigue syndromes, yes. people with other medical things that make them sleepy during the day. There's the body clock disorders, so people who can sleep but not at the time they need to for social reasons, be it for shift work or be yes. it that for some reason their own internal body clocks drifted out to a different time, so common in adolescence, um, yes, but also yes. common with mental health problems as yeah, well. Of course, yeah. Um, think of the strange things happening during sleep as another group. Right. So that's the parasomnias. Oh, wow. So sleepwalking, sleep talking, night terrors, acting out dreams, all of those Interesting. sort of behaviours. And then a subgroup of those is the movement disorders. So that's okay. um, restless legs, people who kick, jump, yes. do other things during sleep. And then there's the breathing disorders during sleep. So snoring, sleep apnea, yep. trouble with breathing during sleep. So you've got those sort of major clusters yes. of disorders. And then you have you sort of worked down from there. There's about 80 odd sleep disorders underneath those sort of cluster headings. Interesting. And is there a commonality, like is there something that you go, okay, so it doesn't matter what sleep condition they've got, There's it's a lifestyle thing or it's a mind, like there's something psychological that's unsettled in the mind is it is there anything common there's a couple but not that goes across everything okay so there'll be things that occur within a cluster yes so within the insomnia cluster for example so trouble getting to sleep staying asleep waking early absolutely there are people who have insomnia for purely biological reasons okay medical condition medication that type yeah of thing. right but a common thing that goes across a lot of people with insomnia in today's modern society is busy brain Difficulty switching off. Totally. Not appreciating the relationship between I can't just go flat, flat stick for 16 hours yes. and then expect to totally stop for eight hours. Exactly. Because yeah. we're not robots. We're not machines where we yeah. flick a switch yes. and turn off. And the going, you know, have being a busy bee for 16 hours. Yeah means you're going to be a busy bee for eight hours at night as well. <laughs> yeah, right. So so busy bees, if they want to sleep well, need to learn how to not be a busy bee at times during the day and be comfortable not being a busy bee at times during the day, which is often the hardest bit, yes. being comfortable sitting still doing nothing, yes. to be able to at night time be comfortable being still and doing right. nothing. Interesting. Because if you're not comfortable being still doing nothing during the day, okay, yeah. there's no way you're going to be able to do that at night. That's great. So one thing, I mean, is, is would you say insomnia is probably the most common condition that you treat? So I've got a particular interest yes. in insomnia. So there's a bias okay, in that. Fair enough. So for yep. me, yes, I do see that. But yep. it is the most common sleep disorder in the community. So one in six adults wow. in Australia, US, most Western countries have insomnia even if they've managed lifestyle factors and other factors. Okay. So it is a really common thing. And tell us about, I mean, you, you're, like I said earlier, you're quite holistic and you don't just look at prescribing pills to patients, but you take quite a, that, you know, a unique approach. So tell us about how you would treat your patients. So there's some of the lifestyle stuff we've been yes. talking about. You can, yeah. you can tell from the way I've been talking. Yes. But I'm very much about 
what they're doing during the day, which is often a bit of a blind spot uh, for people. And funnily enough, sometimes people will tell me what their sleep's like. You know, I can't switch off. It takes me ages to get to sleep. After three or four hours, I'm waking yes. and then restless for the remainder of the night. And then I say, tell me about your day. Well, I've got a busy job and I've got three kids and really <laughs> I just flop into bed at 10 o'clock finally. And I was like, okay, your sleep's appropriate for everything else in life. Yeah, right. It's actually physiologically fits yep. with everything. So it's not a sleep okay. disorder. Yeah, it's, it's the, a lifestyle. It's holistic. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lifestyle disorder. Yes. So that's part of it is trying to not look at sleep in isolation. Okay. Love it. Um, that's and, great. And so then the next tier down for me yeah. is thinking about that sort of broader health sort of aspect. Then I'm thinking about are people looking after those sort of core health things. Right. So, you know, nutrition, physical activity, you know, their behavior around sleep. And when I'm thinking about sleep, I also want to understand their thinking and behavior around sleep. Now, the reason that's important, if you think of a good sleeper, what do they do to optimize their sleep? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. How okay. much do they think about sleep during the day? Probably not, nothing. Not at all. Yes. How, that's me. How much can you engage them in a discussion about sleep? Really not for very long. Okay. Because they're not interested. Yeah, because they don't have an issue with it, right? right. So, so. I meet, so I meet people socially and they say, oh, you know, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a sleep specialist. Those who don't have a sleep problem yes. just go, hmm. Oh, okay. That, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Whereas those who do have a sleep problem. I want to pick like, your brain. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> that must be such an interesting job. Yes. It's just totally different. Yeah. So I'm trying to get a sense of that because people who are too interested in sleep, that's ah, part of the problem. Okay. They're often trying too hard. They're analyzing yes. it too much. They're overthinking it. Yeah. And it changes the way they behave around sleep. So yeah. a lot of their behaviors are about trying to optimize sleep, which in turn means you're then going to measure the outcome. If that doesn't work, you're then going to think of what's the next thing I'm going to put into place. And yes. you'll be reading to find the thing that you're missing because that's the secret that's going to get yeah. you sleeping better. So I'm trying to, you know, when I'm assessing them, get that idea about how they think and behave around sleep. Uh, and then the final thing I'm thinking of, is there a disorder of yes. sleep? So one of those can't sleep, too sleepy, funny things in sleep, sleep yep. breathing disorder, movement disorder, parasomnia sort of problems yep. that may actually be accounting for their symptoms. So I've usually tried to got a, an idea about their general medical health, an idea about their sort of broader wellness and yes. lifestyle factors, an idea about their thinking and behavior around sleep, and then some idea about may there be a sleep disorder. So that's what I'll try to do as part of that sort of clinical yeah, assessment. right. And what about, like, I think about my children as you're talking, I'm thinking about my kids. I've got a 17-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl. And we created, like, really strong rhythms when they were little. Obviously, you know, you bathe them and you do it like you've got a, like, nighttime routine or rhythm. Um, and as adults, obviously, you know, we kind of forget about ourselves. It's kind of just, you know, we're so caught up in, clean, you know, getting things done and then you quickly brush, wash your face, brush your teeth, go to bed. And it's kind of, you know, creating rhythms I think is really healthy. But the other thing I was thinking is, like, a lot of – I exercise a lot and a lot of people in my circle too, but I've got a couple of people that don't and they're the ones that struggle with sleep. So do you think it's also that the body actually needs to expend a certain amount of energy as well for you to sleep solidly? No. Okay. <laughs> Short answer. Yeah, you give me lots of myths to debunk here. This is really good. Yeah. <laughs> so part of the reason I think about that, yeah. you know, if we take the analogy of elite athletes, yes. for example, so I work with a number of athletes. They often have trouble sleeping. Okay. But what do they do all day? All day, exercise. They're thrashing themselves. Yeah, right. Exercising all day. So really, I think of the exercise sleep story, particularly in modern working professionals, yes. as exercise as meditation. Guilt-free, time off task where we're not being busy. We're focused on something else, giving yes. our minds a break. So it is that, you know, it is it is a form of meditation. Interesting. So yeah. it's 
And so people who tell me, oh, you know, the days I exercise are the days I sleep better. Yes. For me, it's not about the physical side. Yeah, right. It, it's about the mental yep. side. And could it be about the fact that they've released endorphins and so sure. hormonally? Yeah. Absolutely. So yes. I reckon that's a part of it too. Yes. Which again fits into the mental side. So it's, you know what, may not be sleeping well, but I feel okay. Yes. I'm, I'm good because you've got that endorphins from the exercise. So too often people see sleep as the antidote to all ills. I'm not well. I'm frazzled. My yeah. relationship's not great. I've got work stresses. Endorphins will help that. Yes. Time off task totally. will help that. Self-compassion yeah. will help that. Exercise will help that. Sleep may not help that per se, but people get frustrated because they're looking for sleep as the antidote. Yes, that's interesting. And what about, so with so what? tell us about CBT therapy. So when we're managing insomnia, the main psychological therapy that we use is called cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. And we think, you know, shorten that to CBT. Really what it means is what I was talking about before. So cognitive means thinking, behavior means behaviors, yes. what we're doing. And trying to change people's thinking and behavior okay, around it. sleep. Okay. So if I was really trying to summarize CBT, it's to get someone to think about sleep like a good sleeper. Yes. And behave around sleep like a good sleeper. Okay. That's the overarching thing, yes. what I'm trying to do. It's got components. So in technical terms, we break those components down. So one's called sleep restriction. So that's better matching how much time you spend in bed to how much sleep you're actually going to get. Okay. So a problem for a lot of people who aren't sleeping well is they keep maintaining their usual pattern of going to bed or what I call their aspirational sleep time, the time they wish they, they could go, sleep. Yes. They might not have slept those hours for five years, but they're still <laughs> hoping that yeah. some miracle is going to happen 1,500 <laughs> nights later and it's going to work tonight and it hasn't worked the last 1,499 nights. That would be disappointing, right? wouldn't it? Exactly. But that's what, that's we, as human beings, that's what we do. Yes. So sleep restriction is saying, okay, you're only sleeping five hours a night, so you're only going to spend five and a half hours in bed. So really trying to reduce the amount of time awake in bed. Yeah, right. As well as also build up a bit of sleep debt yep. so that then people are more sleepy yes. at the time they're trying to sleep. So that's one component of CBT. Next component is called stimulus control. So that's the sort of what to do when you wake up at night. Right. And largely the, the summary is stop trying to sleep. What really the instructions are if you're awake at night, Tossing, turning, frustrated, can't get back to sleep. You've got to get out get out of bed or at least sit up and switch out of that mode of trying to sleep. Really just getting, getting... Right, because it's incredibly frustrating. So you need a distractor. Yes. So usually we'll say, well, get out of bed, go to a different room, somewhere quiet, do something non-stimulating yes. until you feel sleepy and then back What to happened bed. to the good old counting sheep? <laughs> right. But he, there is that if people can do that and be distracted by it rather than going one, two, <laughs> but hell, I'm up to 10 and I'm still not asleep. Now, now it's 20. I must be having a really bad night. And so if you can be... It's the approach. You, you need to be... Mindset. Right. You yeah. need to be able to be distracted. Yeah, understand. That's so, interesting. So that's the stimulus control. Yes. Next component's relaxation, which is developing a relaxation nice. um, skill. Because it's not uncommon for me to see people with insomnia or stress-related sleep problems, I say, okay, what's your go-to thing? You notice you're getting a bit stressed and you're not sleeping well. What do you do? I don't really have a thing that I do. So trying to get people to develop a thing. That's nice. That's their relaxation. So could it be something like strategy. listening to a meditation CD or? Absolutely. Whatever their thing. Yes, is. Is. Yeah, okay. Something that allows them to feel calm and feel relaxed that they can practice during the day so that then if they're awake and frustrated at night, they could redo that same thing. But the key is practicing it during the day so you've got some confidence in it. Yes. You know what? 
if I'm feeling tense, I do this thing, the consequence is I actually feel calm. I can take that classically conditioned response yep. and then bring that into nighttime. To nighttime. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, next thing's the fourth thing is cognitive therapy. So that's changing people's thinking and beliefs okay. around sleep. Yep. Now, we all have beliefs around sleep, um, but it's pretty, uh, once you sort of get your ear in for it, you can hear when people have unrealistic beliefs around sleep. For example, if I don't get eight hours of sleep, I won't be able to perform my tasks tomorrow. Well, guess what? The last 1,499 nights, you <laughs> haven't had eight hours of sleep and you've still raised your children and you're yes. working full time and... You know, yep. You're gainfully employed and haven't been disciplined in the workplace. And so is that really true? Or you know, I have no ability to control my sleep, yep. for example. Okay. In actual fact, you know what? There are actually a number of different things we can do to control sleep. We can manipulate the timing. We can determine how sleep deprived we are yes. by determining when we go to bed. Okay. So there's a number of things we can control. So really trying to sense those beliefs around sleep and most of the time chipping away at them. Yeah. Well, people say, you know, I've, I've never been a good sleeper. I'm a poor sleeper. I'm a shocking sleeper. Really? Well, you're not going to sleep well if that's your core, uh, yeah. core belief. Yes. That you're a shocking sleeper. Yeah, exactly. So that's the cognitive therapy. Yes. That's, that's a bit hard sometimes. Powerful. So it's, it's the most powerful strategy for long-term results. Yes. So the sleep restriction, stimulus control, they get me good short-term result, really sort of bully sleep into line in the short term. But the thing that conveys the long-term results is changing that thinking cognitive, yeah. around sleep, Absolutely. the cognitive component. And Makes then the, sense. the fifth component is sleep hygiene. Hygiene, did you say? Hygiene. So Tell that's the rules that. okay. around sleep. Don't drink alcohol after this time. Don't have big meals. Don't exercise after a certain amount of time. Don't drink caffeine too late. In essence, there's never been a research study that's showing those rules alone work. Yeah. work. Right. But if you look in the public space about, you know, how to sleep well, it's all articles about rules, all these sleep hygiene rules. Yeah, right. S seven ways to sleep well tonight. Yeah. It'll be cherry picked seven of these sleep hygiene yeah, right. sort of pick lists. Don't have coffee things. after three o'clock or something like that. Right, exactly. And so if you think of the sort of person who's at the higher risk of getting insomnia in today's society, so someone who's attention to detail, they're busy working professional, you give them a whole stack of rules to follow. Do you think that's going to help them feel more relaxed? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> right, exactly. So they're trying to ace their sleep hygiene exam. They're trying to get the gold star <laughs> and be the best performer on sleep hygiene and yeah. bring the chart back to me and go, see, I've done, I've done everything. This, I've, yeah. I've been doing all these things. Going, yeah, that's the problem. Yes. You're, you're doing all these things is, exactly. is the problem. Exactly, a bit of chill. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the sleep hygiene, it's almost for people who are in the pre-healthcare engagement space. Okay. So think of that who's someone who's doing it all wrong. Yes. Around yes. sleep. I call it disrespectful. Okay. They're disrespectful <laughs> of sleep. Yeah. All you need to do is just be, yeah. don't be disrespectful. And that's enough yeah. from a sleep hygiene point of view. yeah. Well, you've got to score 50% on your sleep hygiene exam, <laughs> not 90% on your sleep hygiene yeah. exam. So don't overly focus on the sleep hygiene. And that's yes. important because sometimes when I see health professionals who aren't specialists in the sleep area, the advice they're giving out is sleep hygiene. And because they're not as familiar with those other four components of, of the CBT. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's and so Makes the, sense. the person who's already feeling a bit anxious and already read the listicles of the seven things to do to, yes. to sleep well gets another three things to do from the health professional. And yeah. now they've got 10 things to do and they're a bit more anxious. And, yes. And so we just as health professionals need to make sure people are not disrespectful of sleep, but not push the sleep hygiene yes. too much. Interesting. Amazing. And what about, I mean, obviously sleeping pills are, I'm pretty sure you can buy them over the counter, can't you? 
Some. Some. So, yeah, okay. any, any histamines you can buy over the counter are commonly used by people. Talk to us about those because I've only, I mean, I travel a lot, as I mentioned earlier, and I have only ever used melatonin tablets once to help me sleep. Um, but tell us about sleeping pills and, I mean, how they affect the sleep patterns and, if, and long-term, if, you know, I guess, side effects of those. So sleeping pills absolutely have a role okay. in, in managing sleep, but they're not for everyone. Okay. And for me, the two sort of key roles for them are in people who've got acute, think of that as, you know, quite distressing yes. short-term sleep problems. So there's a short-term situation that's causing someone a great deal of distress and they're not sleeping well and it's severely impacting on their mental health and daytime function. Yes, okay. So there's a good rationale for a short-term use of medication whilst that situation passes. Okay. And you're waiting for that to sort of... Understand. To, to move on. So someone's going through a very stressful time. Right. So that's it. The other situation is, although I've talked about CBT and I'm very proactive with CBT, yes. it doesn't work for everybody. Right. So there are some people who, you know, despite their best efforts, find it challenging and can't quite get their heads around that way of reconceptualizing sleep. The more common thing, though, is people have got real underlying medical or mental health issues that means that sleep it's going to not be able to work well enough by itself. Yes. So they may be doing all the right things around sleep. They may be thinking, behaving okay around sleep, but because of their persistent pain, their longstanding depression, uh, their underlying anxiety, their thyroid dysfunction, you know, wh whatever, sleep's still not working well enough. And so there's a role in those people for medications. Yes. So in those two situations. Now, yep. most people, fortunately, aren't in those situations, so we can manage without medication. And so the problem with medications, um, if they're used too liberally or for people who, you know, I want the short-term solution, just give me the medication, is you've got to think about what is it you're after? Because most of the sleep medications will give time of unawareness, but they don't actually improve sleep quality and don't maintain that normal biological pattern, the okay. sleep story yes. that I talked about, yes. of the EEG unfolding across the night. And so people, that's where it's a lot of the work we do is resetting expectation. People are chasing the wrong thing. They're chasing, I want unawareness yes. because I equate that with sleep. Rest. Yeah. yeah, with rest, rest right? Yeah. Because I need the, I need respite from my day, which yes. is painful and, uh, you know, I'm uncomfortable or there's... You know, certainly in our current situation, there are uncomfortable things about our day and yes. things that are difficult to face. So I want to just check out from Understand. that by having a period of unawareness. Yes. That's not actually sleep. No. It's sedation. Yes. It's checking out. <laughs> yeah. So if people are looking to a sleeping pill to give them minutes of unawareness as yes. a way of checking out from reality, that's where we run into problems. Okay. Because people will not feel any better during yes. the day. Yes. In fact, often feel tired during the day, but because they've got these biases and changed thinking around sleep, they go, oh, I'm tired because I'm not sleeping well enough. Yes. So I better add in another medication ah. because my sleep's still not right. And they're just a vicious cycle of medication and tiredness and still, um, you know, not getting the respite they want yes. from the day. Again, whereas taking a more holistic approach, if they were um, able to get support for their mental health during the day yes. or had some good stress management strategies or were able to look after themselves in a self-care, nurturing yeah. sort of sense, they may, won't be looking for sleep to be that respite exactly. from, from the day in the same way. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. So what about sleep apnea? I mean, that's probably one of the more life-threatening um, sleep disorders, would you say? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the most. Uh, d- depends on dying from what. Yes. So in the in the longer term, sleep apnea is associated with cardiovascular disease and adverse cardiovascular outcomes. But other conditions like narcolepsy or shift work disorder in the short term can cause significant problems with, say, accidents and work-related yeah, right. accidents. So maybe just tell the audience what sleep apnea is. So all of us, when we go to sleep, have relaxation of our muscles, in part so that we're not moving around too much and we're not acting out our dreams. And a particularly vulnerable part is our upper airway. So part of speaking as humans is we've evolved a muscular segment in our airway at the back of the tongue. And so we can move that part of the airway to make different vocal noises to speak. But that part, because it's all muscles, when we go to sleep at night and we lay down, those muscles relax and it's a vulnerable part that can become narrow. Now, people who are more prone to get even more narrowing are people who are overweight. Overweight, That's one stereotype. Yes. But in actual fact, a lot of the risk of sleep apnea is to do with skull shape. So it's people who either have a slightly smaller, sort of narrower, shorter lower jaw, and that can be go with a facial profile that's a narrower, more petite sort of facial profile. Interesting. Get sleep apnea too because the back of the tongue is going to be positioned a bit closer to the back of the airway. Yes, so physiologically it's just the way it is. Exactly, it's just the way it is. So that's, we call that obstructive sleep apnea, where the upper airway becomes obstructed when people are asleep. Interesting. And when that occurs, essentially it sets off a sequence of events. The brain senses, hey, difficult to breathe, sets off the alarm bells, pulls people up to a lighter sleep, surges their blood pressure, puts up their heart rate, sends an adrenaline surge through the body. So that's all those adverse cardiovascular and metabolic effects that occur from that. And it's the also the repeated sleep disruption, which can occur tens of times per hour. Yes. Can just make people feel exhausted during the day. So they'll be waking up feeling terrible. So they yeah feel terrible through the day. So that's the sort of typical things of sleep apnea. So yes, have the stereotype of people who are overweight. Yes. It's going to have sleep apnea. Um, but also skinny people get sleep apnea too. And think of that in terms of skull shape. Yes. The one way of picking that is um, people who are familiar with dentistry pick yes, that. So people yes. who've got an overbite, dental crowding. Um, the dentist says, "I can't really, you know, can't get my instruments in because your tongue gets in the way." <laughs> think sleep, yeah. think sleep apnea. Oh, that's interesting. And so typically, is that treated with a oxygen mask at night? So it depends. So certainly at the severe end of the spectrum, yes. we'll use an air pressure device. Yes. So that's called CPAP. So it stands for continuous positive airway pressure. So it doesn't have to be oxygen. In fact, it's not oxygen. It's yes. just air pressure. Because it, if you can get a positive pressure in the back of the airway, then the muscles don't relax and close over and the airway's held open. Okay. Interesting. Now, we do use some other treatments. So we use dental appliances. Yes. So one type's called a mandib- mandibular advancement splint. The mandibles, the lower lower jaw. jaw. Yeah. Because um, that'll hold the lower jaw forward, bring the mm. tongue away from the back of the airway and so create more space yeah. in, in the back of the airway. Interesting. And what about, um, let's talk about the other um, disorders now. What about restless legs? Tell us about that. So restless legs is a sense when... Often people are sitting still or immobile or when they first go to bed at night of just this irresistible urge to move their legs. <laughs> I've had that before. Right. So most women have experienced it often in pregnancy. Yes. Because one of the things that trigger... It's like an agitation. They've got right. to move. 
Right. So one of the things that triggers it is low iron stores oh. or the body mobilizing iron. So one state where you're mobilizing a lot of iron is pregnancy, oh. particularly third trimester when you're sucking out all that iron mm. to, f- to feed the, the baby, baby who's growing, growing rapidly. So most women have got a bit of it during pregnancy. Okay. And it's not uncommon for people to get it occasionally, which is which is troublesome because that's about one in six of the population yes. will have restless legs, you know, on and off. Um, whereas about two to three in a thousand get very severe restless legs every single day that wow. drives them totally bananas. And so those two two or three in a thousand get told by the one in six, oh yeah, I had that thing. It was no big deal, you know. Yes. Just, just get over it. Take, yes. take a couple of magnesium tablets. It'll, look, <laughs> You'll be right. it'll all be fine. Yes. And so restless legs comes in a grade of severities. And there's definitely that severe end of the spectrum, more that end up in my office, right. who will need medication despite yes. their best efforts and lifestyle factors. Mm. Whereas people who get it infrequently or intermittently, yeah, magnesium can be a really good way of managing it. Um, hot bath, massage, um, making sure your iron stores are adequate yeah. and you're not low in iron. Um, stress management, it's not caused by stress, but modulated by stress. Okay. So when we're more stressed, the symptoms are more likely to come out. Interesting. That's interesting. So it's purely, it sounds like nutritionally based. Think of it as there's dopamine in the brain. So the problem is it's a dopamine transport problem in parts of the brain. Okay. But the interaction is that to make dopamine in that part of the brain, you need iron as one of the yeah, pre- right. precursors. Understand. So that's where the iron story comes, comes in. in. Interesting. And what about narcolepsy? So there's so narcolepsy gets a bit of a bad rap in, okay. in some respects. Yes. Because unfortunately, it's become more of a, 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 a term for someone who will fall asleep everywhere. Ah. You know, if you look in the Urban Dictionary now and there's been narcolepsy featured on The Simpsons, there's narcolepsy <laughs> characters in Hollywood movies like Juice Bigelow is, yes. is one famous one. Um, essentially, it's, you know, the the char- character is prone to falling asleep everywhere and you know, or they get a sudden surprise, they collapse to the ground and fall yeah, asleep, right. sort of falling asleep in the soup. Now, I don't see anyone with narcolepsy who actually does that. <laughs> and so that's a real issue because narcolepsy is rare, but not as rare as we think. So about three in 10,000 people have narcolepsy. Okay. And unfortunately, they've had an autoimmune condition that's totally destroyed nerve cells in their oh. brain that make a chemical called orexin. And orexin is really important in helping us stay awake and maintaining the balance between wake and sleep. Oh. So if you're missing orexin... One, you have trouble staying awake. And two, you spend a lot of time in this boundary of wake and sleep. Yeah, so right. if you're awake, you'll easily fall asleep, but then you'll wake up again. Yes. And at night time, if you're asleep, you'll easily wake, wake up, up again. and you'll get weird half awake, half asleep stuff Interesting. In, in between like sleep paralysis, hypnopompic hallucinations, this visual imagery around sleep onset. So that sort of un- very unfortunate group of people who are the three in 10,000. Yes. Sometimes their condition's made fun of in some respects yeah, because schools. there's this, yeah, schools and other things, yeah. kids joking, ah, you're narcoleptic, look yes. at you, you fall asleep everywhere. And so there's that, there's the sort of narcolepsy we think of, which is the genuine neurological condition. Yeah. And then there's the, the sort of the Hollywood narcolepsy, which is, the, or the Urban Dictionary narcolepsy, which is your mate who's always going to be sleepy yes. all the time. Yeah. So that ain't narcolepsy necessarily. So how do you treat that? 
So because it's a lifelong condition with a deficiency of this neurotransmitter orexin, yes. um, unfortunately, we need to use medications to support wakefulness right. to treat that. Okay. So a medication to help people stay yep. more awake. Understand. Now, the perfect treatment going forward in the future would be to replace orexin. Um, and there's certainly work going on. And hopefully in the future, that's how we'll manage it, okay. is by re- replacing that. Right. Awesome. Talk to us about snoring causes snoring and is not necessarily dangerous, but is there, is there something wrong with people who snore? Is it? Yeah. As a, as, as a sometimes snorer myself, <laughs> of course there's nothing wrong with, pe- with people who snore. Um, so, so snoring overlaps with sleep apnea and in fact doesn't overlap. It's the same thing. Yes. So think of it as a spectrum. Okay. So again, you've got that vulnerable upper airway segment. If it narrows a little bit, it's like a narrowing in a river. So if you watch a river flow, the flow is smooth and then there's a narrowing in the river and you get these turbulent eddies yeah, and right. currents Understand. in it. So the That's upper airway is the same. You, you get this minor narrowing of the airway, you get turbulent airflow, which then sets up a vibration of other structures in the upper airway yes. and that makes a snoring And noise. you just get a nudge and then you snore. Stop, right. is that how it works? Yeah, you get a nudge, the muscles <laughs> contract and then the airway opens up again. And so it's just how narrow the airway gets. If it's a little bit narrow, you get turbulent airflow and snoring. Yep. Narrows a little bit more, it's a sleep right. apnea. Okay. So it's all yes. a continuum of the same thing. But snoring's pretty normal. And it's so interesting how culturally different cultural groups think about snoring. So in Western society, you know, we're very much the princess and the pea about our bedroom environment. (laughs) So that snoring noise must be banished from my room. You know, that's got to stop. Whereas I do a lot of work in India. And in India, I can't remember the saying in Hindi, but essentially uh, the essence of it is if there's snoring in the household, then all is good. And so it's seen as a sign of comfort and prosperity. And so when I work in India, people are like, well, why do you see all these people with snoring? Why are they concerned about this? This is a positive... Positive oh, thing to be to be celebrated. I'm with Indians. Yeah, so it, so it is a bit, you know, it's how we conceptualise it yeah. often. Yeah, well, it, I guess it's telling that you're in a deep sleep, really, in a sense, isn't it? Right. So that's their take on it. If, yes. If everyone's relaxed enough that they can be deeply asleep yeah. and snoring, it's a good thing. Life is good. So what about um, the movement disorder? So sleepwalking, sleep talking, that comes. That's classified as a disorder as well. But what causes that? So it's actually common. So, you know, anyone who's had young kids knows that occasionally they'll get night terrors or talk or walk uh, during the night. But it's actually common in adults. So about two in a hundred adults will still regularly sleep, walk or sleep, talk. Goodness. And so a common time for me it's to see... It's a freaky thing to see, by the way. Right. <laughs> so a common time for me to see people is like someone I saw today. So a woman in her mid-20s starting to cohabitate with a partner. And it was always something a family just understood and no big deal. Yes. But now you start to live with a partner and it's regularly disturbing their sleep, which then makes the person who's doing it a little more anxious about it, which then guarantees it's going to happen oh, more. Oh, goodness. And it all just crescendos. Yes. And and increases. Yeah. So one of the things that doesn't cause it but contributes to it is stress. So essentially think of sleepwalking or sleep talking. You need to have a main part of the brain or the cortex deeply asleep and then the fight, flight, vigilance part of the brain um, active. And so you've the, the right circumstances for that is a young, healthy, deep sleeper who's somewhat anxious about something right. because then you get that automatic primitive fight flight part of the brain behaving like it's awake whilst the cortex consciousness social filters 
being asleep. Yeah. And that's what leads to these behaviours. So you're leaping out of bed, you're yes. yelling, you're screaming, you're going to the fridge and uncontrollably eating things. You know, these automatic type of primitive behaviours, the, the reptilian type of brain yeah. is awake and unfiltered. Well, it can be so dangerous as well. Right. It's uncommon though for yeah. people to be putting themselves at harm. That is okay. re really uncommon. Okay. Um, but it's more that it's um, they may injure themselves, run themselves out of bed, um, or often more commonly distressing for the bed partner. Yes. And so if it's more something people are prone to, but they recognise during periods of stress, it increases in intensity. Again, that's another condition I'll really focus on stress management as a way of keeping things at, at, bay. at bay. Yeah, interesting. And are any of these sleep disorders hereditary? So to some extent, yes. Okay. So there's very few sleep disorders that are the, if you think about inheritance as being a 50% chance of each child getting it. Um, whereas if we think of something where um, people within a certain family are at a higher risk than the background community right. of getting it, okay. then a lot of them are like. I like okay. that. For example, I, I said narcolepsy is a three in 10,000 yes. condition, but parents of one child with narcolepsy have about a one in 50 chance of having another child with narcolepsy. Okay. So more common than the background yeah. population, but not a one in two. Now talk to us about shift workers. Like, is it true that it's you get more quality sleep if you're sleeping before midnight, like if you fall asleep before midnight? Is that a myth? Yes. That, yeah. Okay. <laughs> another myth? It's, it's another one. I love this one. So people quote this to me every week. Yeah. It's actually a 16 century saying okay from puritanical england yes when we believed the world was flat yes, um, yes. we didn't know that the brain was active during sleep <laughs> yeah. you know we had a whole range of other beliefs we used leeches for you know bloodletting to fix a whole <laughs> lot of medical things and so there's no other area of medicine where people ask me come into my, my office and say well this this 500 year old saying yes and thing is that how i should be managing yeah. my my condition no, it's total rubbish no okay. and it's really a societal belief around sleep that the um, because what people used to do was when the sun went down there's no um, artificial lighting yes. sun went down you went to bed so you'd sleep for three or four hours yes and because that was you had the most you were tired from the day exactly like the way we sleep the first three or four hours feels deeper the experience is yeah. that it feels deeper and then it's normal to wake three or four hours into the night and reset go to the bathroom and so people would wake after three or four hours and then be awake for an hour or two yes. during the night and then doze until the sun came up. And so that led to that saying, an hour of sleep before midnight is worth two hours after midnight yes. because it just felt better, deeper. Yeah. So, okay. put, so that's where people are, are quite, you know, put these value judgments on it, yes. felt better. Whereas in actual fact, there was just more, think of it as there was more unawareness yes. in that first half of the night, which doesn't mean better or worse. It just means different. There's yep. more is more unawareness. So if you get home from a party and you fall asleep at three o'clock in the morning and wake up nine o'clock nine o'clock the next day, it's all good. Right. Still fine. And, and there's plenty of people <laughs> that are eveningness types whose yep. natural preference isn't to go to bed till twelve one and yes. wait till eight or nine. And if we let them um, match their social time yep. to their biological preference, that's when they perform at their best. Okay. So if we tried to put a square peg in a round hole and make them go to bed at nine PM and wake up at 6 a.m., yes. they'd always function poorly okay. because they'd have trouble getting to sleep at the start of the night and yep. they'd feel heavy-headed and have them trouble getting going yeah, in the right. morning. Interesting. What about the value of siestas or napping? Yeah, I, lo I love I love yeah. napping. So that's my secret superpower Okay, is, is napping. Well, how long do you nap for? 
oh, I've got a range of naps. Okay. A range of naps. I can do, <laughs> if I've got three train stations before I get home, I can usually fit wow. a very brief micro nap in. That's good. That's a um, skill. Right. That's yeah. what I say. It's my secret superpower. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but again, I said day afternoon, I can do an hour nap on the couch as well. That's awesome. So, Have you always been able to do that though? Not, not always, but I must admit, so partly modeling behavior that yes. when I learned, you know, when I grew up, so my father had a habit of sitting in his chair yes. after lunch and having a nap, nap for half an hour because he often had to work in the evenings. Um, totally rational way of approaching yeah. sleep and managing sleep. Now, where it fits for me is good sleepers, going back to this good sleepers, bad sleepers, yes. good sleepers have what I call a fluid way of thinking about sleep. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yes wherever, said. whenever. Anytime, yes. any circumstances. Yes. Napping's to be able to nap, you've got to have that fluidity. Yeah. Opportunity yep. arises. Yep. I'm just going to take it. I'm just going to take it. That's my husband. He right. can sleep anywhere at any time. Right. Whereas someone <laughs> who's got that rigidity of thinking about sleep will yes. be, well, I couldn't nap because to go to sleep, I've got to be in this place and yes. it's got to be these circumstances. I've got to have these conditions. Them. Right. It's not yeah. going to happen for them. Yes. So often I'm trying to, and, and also think, think of napping as an advanced skill. Yes. If you're not comfortable in the day stopping and being still, you're no chance of napping. Yes. So you've first got to be comfortable that with that skill stop. of stopping. Yep. And and um, being You're more still. likely to nap comfortably. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. That's awesome. Now, what about people who listen to music or podcasts or any educational or audio books, like before, like a bit during bed sleep time or when they're about to go to sleep? Will they? Uh, is it likely that they're able to retain some information that they've heard? Or so the jury's out okay. on that. And in part, the reason I say it's out, because in a truly artificial experimental design, yes. you can show changes in retention okay. with, with that sort of experiment. Oh. So that you get someone to read something and then get them to have a certain amount of particular types of sleep. You may show better retention than if you prevent certain types okay. of sleep. Now, how does that translate to people you know, living in the wild, yes. in the real world, where yeah. we sometimes sleep better, sometimes worse? That's the part where people haven't really been able to show a significant difference. Um, and so th that's why I say the jury's out. Okay. If we, if we control things very tightly, yes, there's some impacts on different stages and sleep on learning. But once we put it in the real world and there's all these other variables, does that fade away? Is it such a small difference that it doesn't matter? We don't know. Okay. Really. Interesting. Now, what about dreams? I rarely dream. And if I do, I might wake up and think I've had a dream and I might remember snippets of it. But my, my husband has the most vivid dreams and he can recall them like in minute detail. So talk to me about like dreams and the recollection and, and why is it that some people can recall and others can't? Right. So a nice description of the variability from person to person. Yes. So some people have vivid dream recollection. Yep. Some people don't. Yep. Okay. For everybody at varies a bit across life. There's some some phases in life where people may feel like they're a bit more aware of dreams and other phases where they're not. Yes. We don't really know why. Okay. So some people do seem to recall dreams more than others. Yeah. There is an association though that's that's not you know, it's not strong, but it's there. Yes. Of how intense and how vivid the dreams are matching with where someone's sitting in a sympathetic nervous system activity level. Right. So one extreme, think the person with PTSD. Yes. So high, so post-traumatic stress disorder, high yep. levels of adrenaline drive because yep. of that perceived threat. So one of the problems is of nightmares, vivid um, dreams, these are recurring visual imagery. Um, so that's sort of one end of the extreme. Okay. But at the less extreme end, 
Um, if somebody, let's just say, I give you know, use you as an example. Your yes. normal state is you barely recall much about your dreams. You know, current circumstances are pretty challenging, and if you found over the next few weeks you were getting more dreams and they were more vivid and you yeah. recalled more about them, for me that would be a reflection of where your underlying sympathetic nervous system activity was sitting. That yes. it's just trending up from your long term average and therefore giving you a bit more dream oh, recollection. So. so within an individual you can often track that if there's a change in their characteristics. Yeah. And medications also change that. So very typically the antidepressants, anti-anxieties like SSRIs, SNRIs will often change dream recollection as well and make dreams um, more prominent or people have greater recollection of dreams. Interesting. That is interesting. So in your opinion, if you, I mean, it's obviously, yeah, just in your opinion, do you think having good quality sleep leads to greater health and longevity overall? Yes. So, so, and my reason for being a little reserved about that yeah. is come back to how you define good quality sleep. So in essence, yes, I want um, people to um, have prioritized sleep. Yes. So really see sleep as one of the key pillars of health, equally important as with nutrition and physical exercise. So sleep, see sleep as being important, but the, the, delicate balance is I want people to respect sleep, set aside the space and adequate opportunity for it, but then step back and be okay. I've set aside the space. Whatever happens in that space, happens. Um, whatever happens, happens. Yes. As long as I've set aside the space and you know commit to when I enter sleep, I'm going to be in the right frame of mind. I'm going to be sort of ready physically and mentally for yeah. sleep. That's really what I want. So I want respect about sleep, but then ambivalence about what happens once you've set aside that space for sleep. And that's the tricky balance. Yes. So if I dial up too much for people, the you must sleep well, this is the language I often see in the um, professional athlete sort of area or yes. the, the amateur athletes who are really trying to train area. Okay, you must get this amount of sleep to um, ensure optimal performance. We can't make sleep come. No. So if you tell someone you have to make sleep come, Guaranteed way to make them anxious about sleep. Exactly. Which is much more than, so I don't want to be telling people, right, a key for you for health is you must get good sleep because that's just going to guarantee they, they're not going to get good sleep. <laughs> exactly. And I see it actually, I see it in letters I get sent from other medical specialists who've referred people to me is like, well, I've told them that they must get good sleep to <laughs> oh, ensure good health. I was like, yeah, okay. So that's some sleep, <laughs> ang sleep anxiety I'm going to have to unwind, <laughs> unwind exactly. here. Exactly. So yes, sleep is absolutely important and should be seen as a pillar of maintaining good health. But think of it as create the right opportunity and the right conditions for sleep and then step back and trust that your it's brain and body will take the sleep they need. Yes. And how much sleep your brain and body need is going to vary on a day-to-day -day basis. Totally. It's not going to be uniform the same every day. Yeah, interesting. So I got back from Dubai a couple of weeks ago and it's the first time ever that I took a melatonin tablet because I didn't sleep at all on the flight back and it was like 14 hours and I came back and had things to do and um, yeah, sometime in the afternoon I, I thought I'd take a melatonin tablet and see what it does and I was expecting to feel like knocked out or wiped out pretty quick but it actually didn't do that at all. It was just, it took a little while but then I slept, at, I probably slept for about five or six hours and got up again but yeah, I mean what's your thought what's your opinion on taking people taking melatonin because it's a natural hormone right so what are you what's your opinion on that a natural hormone that changes neurotransmitters <laughs> in the brain <laughs> 
So, so, so let me debunk some of that natural hormone. So, okay. so where we, not now, where yes. we used to get melatonin from is from grinding up cow's brains. Right. So just envisage this natural hormone okay. is I'm taking some ground up cow's brain <laughs> yep. that's going to alter neurotransmitters in my brain. So that's not as natural as you. <laughs> Far from natural. <laughs> right. Well, that's, okay. that's what we're taught. So then, yes, melatonin is something our own bodies produce. Juice, yes. Um, and essentially when it gets dark and we stop sensing light in special senses in the back of the eye, the pineal gland starts to produce melatonin yes. and our melatonin levels will rise. Yes. So yes, we could take chemically manufactured melatonin, much safer than cow's brain mel melatonin. <laughs> so chemically manufactured melatonin to artificially increase our melatonin levels to give the body that signal, hey, it's coming up for time for sleep. And so, yeah, it's quite safe. That's the sort of safety sort yeah. of side. Yeah. You know, one of the things we like about melatonin, yeah, it's quite safe to use. We're not okay. particularly worried in a safety sense. But my caution is, though, if people feel like they're needing, you know, except the exception is a short-term thing like you talked about, yes. so jet lag. But if people are feeling on a longer-term basis like they need to self-medicate with melatonin, for me, there's... There's something else you, you need to be to doing. Address. Yeah, something totally. else you need to address. It's yeah. not just the oh, great. My solution is I'm just going to take melatonin, and that's going to yes, fix everything. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Solve everything. Love it. I love your thinking. So, last question for you: What are your top three tips for living longer, stronger, happier, healthier life? Oh, <laughs> that's pretty tough. So, certainly, number one's got to be sleep. Got to be. But yes. But with that caveat about seeing sleep as a priority and so giving it its adequate respect, but then not being too fussy about what happens. Yeah. So let's call that number one. Yes. Let's call call number two is just ensuring self-care, self-compassion during the day. That's nice. Yeah. Because that's got to be a key to sleeping well is actually looking after yourself. Totally. And then uh, number three is, because I'm in the medical field, I'm a yes. bit biased about this, but literally paying attention to medical disorders and mental health disorders. So not saying, well, I'm not sleeping well, I'm not feeling well during the day, but my arthritis isn't well controlled, my blood pressure is not well controlled, or my anxiety is not well managed. Actually ensuring those conditions are well managed On top of them, yeah. because managing our chronic health conditions is actually going to mediate better long-term health. Yes, understand. Amazing, amazing talking to you. So tell me, where can people find you if they've got any sleep disorders or want to have a chat? Yeah, so a few places to find me. So in the sort of more public facing, I'm on social media. So I post something on Facebook every day, yep. Monday through Friday, some article about sleep. I curate different things about sleep. Excellent. So you can follow me on Facebook. That's Dr. David Cunnington. Yes. Similarly on Instagram, Dr. David Cunnington's my handle on Instagram. Yes. And then I'm on Twitter at David Cunnington. Um, I do produce a lot of material about sleep at sleephub.com.au. Yes. Including the podcast Sleep Talk. Yes. That we run as a monthly podcast on out. sleep. Yeah. And then if people are wanting to see me in my professional capacity as a medical specialist, so I consult from Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre. Okay. That's where I consult. Um, and so people can find the website uh, for that. And yes, in these difficult times, there's going to be challenges in terms of running a practice. Yes. Um, but we're geared up. We're running virtually. So able to provide consultations across this time. That's great. Um, so that if people do need help, yeah, we're there. You've adapted well. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. David Cunnington. It's been great talking to you. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. And I look forward to chatting to you again. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow me on our YouTube channel, One Body, One Life, to 
see more inspirational videos to help you reach optimal wellness and longevity. But until next time, don't forget, you've got to nourish to flourish.